0: Great blessing to be here today. We again appreciate everybody's presence, and I'm just going to assume that the lack of our normal audience is due to the holiday and not because I'm behind the pulpit this morning. Thank you for your prayer on my behalf, uh, Paul. I appreciate that very much. We're continuing, or I'm continuing, the series of the Gospel in Galatians, taking a look at the importance of the Gospel that we find all throughout the book of Galatians, and we've talked several times this past oh, few months regarding what we find there, what Paul was teaching these people in the churches in Galatia. There was a group of people that we call the Judaizers who were coming in and telling these Gentile Christians at these uh, churches in Galatia that they had to obey parts of the law of Moses if they wanted to be real Christians. And so we understand that Paul was telling them to remain true to the gospel. These two passages that we find sort of encapsulate the message of Paul. In Galatians 1, verse six, he says, I marvel that you're turning way so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He says, it's not a different gospel. It's just perversions. I want you to stay true to it. In Galatians 5.1, he says, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So this is Paul's message to these people of stay true to the gospel that I taught you. The, the true gospel teaches us what it means to obey Jesus in, in baptism, but also more importantly, what it means to live a life in service and we've talked about the, the one and only gospel in part one. We talked about being crucified with Christ in part two. In part three, we talked about being children of faith and promise and how that we are, uh, we are justified by faith just as Abraham was. And that faith is in Jesus Christ, who was a result of a, a changeless promise that God made to Abraham. And the purpose of the law of Moses was not to nullify that promise, but rather to lead Israel to Jesus. And so today I want to look at the divine adoption that we read about uh, in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. We read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, we all understand the process of adoption. We all know someone, or maybe even have someone in our own family that's been adopted, and a parent adopts that child and, and receives them as their own flesh and blood and raises them in such a way, their family. And so when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are adopted, we're divinely adopted into God's family. We might receive the adoption as sons. And so I want to take a close look at this morning at that divine adoption and what that means for you and I, how that affects our relationship, the perception that should give us of our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, and with each other. And so I want to take a look, first of all, at this idea of sonship that we have in Jesus Christ. What does it mean that we have sonship in Jesus? He says in Galatians three twenty six, you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so I wanna back up to chapter three here. We're gonna look at, really dive deep into Galatians chapter three, verse 26, 27, and 28 this morning, where we're kinda bringing our main points if you wanna keep a finger in your Bible if you're following along there. You are all the sons of God through Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean that we're the sons of God? Now, I'm going to get to the whole gender issue about that this morning. So ladies, don't be offended that we're referring to you as sons of God because that's a very important terminology. I'm going to come back to that here in just a minute. First of all, I want to deal with this this concept of sonship versus being just the general creation or the general offspring of God because it's important for us to understand that as well. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 28, Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, Paul is in Athens, and he's talking to all these Greeks here and trying to teach them about the true God. And we understand Greek culture and their polytheistic religion, all these different gods and goddesses that manifested itself in different idols and temples and statues and altars. And Paul tells them, as I I was traveling through, I saw these altars, I want to tell you about the one true God. And he's doing that by showing them the nature of God isn't physical, isn't being able to be put in a box or on a pedestal. And he says, understand we are the offspring of God in the sense that we're his creation, but just because we're physical beings doesn't mean that that's the way God is. He's not like silver and gold. You can't shape him and devise him into a work of art. He's spiritual in nature. Now, what that has to do with what we're talking about this morning is just this. We are all the creation of God. Every single human being is the offspring of God in this sense that we were created by him. But that doesn't mean that we're necessarily the sons of God. Being, into, being adopted into God's family means so much more than we're simply just his offspring. There's a greater and more powerful reasoning behind that or purpose behind that. And so when God, as having sonship, if you will, through Jesus Christ into God's family, number one, there's an intimacy there that we find with God that we can't get any other way. In Galatians 4 and 6, he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now there's a relationship here that's more than just, I'm the offspring. This phrase, Abba, Father, is a very intimate, familial, familiar way of addressing our Father. And it's it's almost like a, a baby talk kind of word, like Papa or Daddy. And we find Jesus using this word in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus, in his most desperate hour, at his deepest and darkest moment before his arrest and before his crucifixion, he's praying to God in earnestness. And he says, Abba, Father, he's pleading. He's saying, Daddy, please help me. If there's any other way to accomplish this. And it's important for you and I to understand this. We have that same relationship with our Father because of what Jesus did for us. And by the way, you're going to get tired of hearing me say that. It's all about Jesus. All this is only possible through Jesus. But because of what he's done for us, we have the same, we can go to our father in our deepest, darkest hours, our most desperate moments, and we can say, Daddy, please help me. In essence, we have that relationship. You know, I think of the times my own children, when they were younger, especially if they would get hurt or they were sad about something, they would say, Daddy, can I have a hug? Or, you know, they would want comfort from me and Becca. They would approach us for comfort. And that's the same kind of relationship we have with the father because We've been divinely adopted into his family. In Galatians chapter four, verse seven, he says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So what's been happening in this passage here, the first part of Galatians chapter four, Paul is talking about ancient culture and what it was like for a son that was an heir of his father's estate, if you will. And he says, you know, while the the son is young, he's really basically no better than a slave. He's under guardians, he's under tutors, people to teach him what it means to be responsible. And then when he reaches a certain age, an age that his father has appointed, then he receives his inheritance and is able to take that. He said the same is true with us as Christians, and especially true for the the Jewish nation and the fact that they were under that law of Moses. And this says, when the time appointed, the very first verse we read this morning, when the time was right, God sent forth his son, made of a woman born under the law, and things of that nature. And so what he's saying here is you are no longer slaves, but you are a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. Now, I want to talk about this, this usage of the word son. You're all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're a son, and if you're a son, what he's really saying here is you're an heir. You're a legal heir. And that's why I don't want the ladies to get offended at the word son. He doesn't use the word sons and daughters. He doesn't use the word children. And I think that's very intentional on part of the Holy Spirit when he inspired Paul to write this. Because in this culture, in this day and age, the firstborn son was it. All the other children, whether they were sons or daughters after that, they didn't receive that inheritance. It was the firstborn son that got it all. And if you're a daughter, the best that you could hope for was to have loving parents and a family that tried to get you married to a man who was gonna take care of her. That was the best they could hope for. And so when Paul is telling them, men and women, you are all sons, what he's saying is you're all legal heirs. You all participate in the, the, the rewards and the inheritance that Jesus Christ earned. And it's all through him. You're an heir of God through Christ. And so don't take offense that he's calling us sons if you're a woman, because that's not the, the intent is to show you that doesn't matter. And we're gonna come back to that again later. An heir of God through Christ. And again, it's through Christ. He says in Romans chapter 15, verse uh, excuse me, Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. And I keep going back to Romans in these studies again because Paul is giving almost the same message. Again, Galatians is almost an abridged version of Romans in a lot of ways. But what he says there in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we've already got that that spirit of adoption, crying Abba, Father. The Spirit, he says in verse 16, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So that's the important part for us to understand. To be a joint heir, we have to be a joint heir with Christ. If we wanna be adopted into the family of God, that only happens because the redemptive work on the cross that Jesus did for us. There's no other way that happens. We cannot be an heir of God. We cannot be a quote unquote, a son of God without being in Jesus Christ. And that's what the divine adoption process does for us. It makes us, not just his offspring, but it makes us his children, his legal heirs. And we share that, we have an intimacy that we can have with God no other way but being divinely adopted through Jesus Christ. And I hope we can understand the importance of that. In the next verse, in Galatians chapter three, verse 27, he talks about putting on Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And I don't know how many times I've read this passage in my life or heard it spoken on. Thousands, probably. How many times have we read this passage and we talk about the importance of baptism and certainly that's in this passage. But the important part of this is the putting on of Christ, You've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. What does that actually mean, to put on Christ? It's a lot more important, I think, than we often give it credit for. What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, this Greek word here, or this phrase, if you will, to put on, I don't wanna focus on a lot of the details here, but it, it happens about 29 times in the New Testament. And look at some of these other translations. Sometimes it's translated as clothed with, or clothed in, to be arrayed in, or be clothed to clothe oneself. And so now we start to get a a better idea of what it means to put on Christ. He might as well have said, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have been clothed in Christ. And so we can think about our own clothing and maybe get an idea of what it really means for us to put on Christ or to be clothed in Christ. What is it that our clothing does for us? We think about that on a a daily basis. Number one, I think it gives us a primary identity. And I understand. Woke, woke culture and all that has changed <laughs> ideas of clothing and what we consider normal. But first of all, clothing identifies us as kind of a, a first impression of who this person is. So if somebody sees me dressed in, in slacks and a button-down shirt and a sport coat, well, that's a man, first of all. Hopefully, again, I understand society's uh, wokeness and all that. I see a, a person in a dress or a skirt and a, and a blouse, I'm going to think that's a woman. If I see a person wearing a black or blue uniform with a badge and a gun belt, what am I, that's a police officer or a law officer of some kind. So we identify ourselves with our clothing to a degree. Being clothed in Christ means we find our primary identity in Jesus Christ, who we are, what we do, what we believe, what we say, all of that means we're clothed in Christ. In Second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, when you're in Christ, when you've been clothed in Christ, that means you're a new, your primary identity. What you are, who you are, what you do is all about Jesus. If somebody asks you, what is the most important thing about you, your identity? I'm a Christian. That should be our answer, and hopefully it's a true answer. That's what it means to be clothed in Christ. Number two, it indicates a closeness to Christ. And now as I stand before you this morning, the closest thing to me physically is my clothes. I I rely on my clothes. They protect me from the elements. They keep me warm. I can put on a raincoat and go out in the rain. I can put on snow boots and a coat and go out in the snow. We rely on our clothes to protect us from the elements and we rely on them to sort of, we're dependent upon them. You know, we read in John chapter 15, verse five, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. We can't accomplish much in this world without our clothes, can we? If I go to the office and I'm not wearing any clothes, I'm gonna get arrested before I get there. I'm not gonna accomplish anything good. Jesus isn't saying here, you can't do anything without me. What he's saying is you can't do anything of significance without me. None of it matters. The things that matter, you can't do that without me. You have to be clothed in Christ, your relationship to God, your relationship with each other, what you do, what you say, none of that matters if you're not clothed in me. Number three, an imitation of Christ. In order to maintain this closeness with Jesus, we have to imitate him. You know, our clothes go with us everywhere we go. Wherever we go, we've got our clothes with us, don't we? You take Jesus wherever you go, my, my mom always used to say that her mom, my always used to tell her when she was going out with her friends, make sure the places you're going, you, ask, you need to ask yourself this question. If Jesus comes back while I'm in there, would he come in there to get me? And that's pretty good advice. It's kind of the old, you know, old, old wives advice if you but also remember this, Jesus is with you all the time. The question we really need to be asking ourselves is, I've got Jesus, I'm clothed in Christ, do I need to take him in this place with me? Or do I need to do this knowing that Jesus is with me? Is this something he would do? We need to imitate him. And we need to take him with us wherever we go. Not just here in this building. When we walk out these doors and go out into the world, we'll go to school, we'll go to work, see our friends. Is Jesus going with us? That's what it means to be clothed in Christ. And finally, oh, I have this, this verse here to back that up. Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. How do we avoid these things we shouldn't be doing? We put on Jesus. We become clothed in Christ. And finally, we find acceptability in Christ. You no, know, the, the biggest thing about the clothing that I'm wearing this morning is it's a blessing to you that I'm wearing these clothes. We're all blessed because I'm wearing clothing today. Trust me. I would be embarrassed, I would be ashamed. I would feel vulnerable, and you would be disgusted <laughs> if I were not wearing clothes today. It covers our shame. It makes us acceptable to be out in public, right? Being clothed with Christ is no different. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does it mean to be clothed in Christ? It means when God looks down on me, he no longer sees that naked, pitiful wretch of a sinner. And if he does have clothes on, they're just filthy rags. God no longer sees that. Instead, I'm adorned in the glorious nature of Jesus Christ. He no longer sees that pitiful wretch. He sees the blood of his son. And because of that, I'm acceptable to God. So we should never downplay this concept of putting on Christ. It means so much more than just saying, well, I've been baptized and you have to be baptized to be saved. That's true, but the important part of that is putting on Jesus, being clothed in him, finding our primary identity there, having a closeness to him, imitating him and taking him wherever we go, and being acceptable to God. Again, only in Christ. Only in Christ that happens. None of this is possible unless we're divinely adopted into the family of God. And finally, we're all one in Christ Jesus. So you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. As many of us who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So being divinely adopted into God's family, our closeness to Jesus through the gospel means that all barriers are broken down regardless of our differences, and there are differences, regardless of those, the common bond of the gospel that we have, that we've all put on Christ, brings us together. Before we get into the details of that, though, I want to talk about this, because when Paul is saying, look, when he's saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male, he's not talking about abolishing all the differences that separate us, culturally He's not saying, hey, the church should make its primary goal to abolish slavery all throughout the world. That would be a good thing. I don't think this Paul is either condoning or condemning slavery here. What he's talking about is regardless of whether you're a slave or whether you're free, we're all one. You know, Paul goes into great detail in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 about our relationships with one another and the different roles and responsibilities that we have between men and women, between those that have more power, less, or more money, less money? Why would he go to the trouble of regulating those regulations if he, if he was trying to say, here, there shouldn't be those, you know, that's, that's, again, that woke culture of, well, doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, you can do whatever you want to do. Doesn't matter if you, whatever the case might be, we all ought to have the same amount of money. We should all give it to the government and let them disperse it. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is despite our differences, we're one. And so he regulates things like general submission among all brethren, wives, husbands husbands sacrificially loving their wives, children obeying parents, parents raising and training children, bond servants being obedient to masters, masters are treating their bond servants well. All these things, these are relationships that we have within the church. And what Paul is saying in Galatians 3, he's saying is despite these differences, despite our different roles and responsibilities, we're all one. Within leadership of the church, or whether you know the responsibility of wealthy people to help those that are in need, the responsibility and obligation of those that are in power to seek mercy and justice for those that are weak. Despite those differences, we're all one. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Galatians 2.14, "'When I saw that they were not straightforward "'about the truth of the gospel, "'I said to Peter before them all, "'If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles "'and not as the Jews, "'why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews?' We talked about this a couple of sermons ago regarding Peter and his behavior towards these, Jew, these Gentiles in Antioch. Why are you trying to impose your cultural beliefs that have nothing to do with the gospel on these Gentiles? Why are you trying to do that? All it did was separate them. He's, he, what he's trying to tell him, the whole book of Galatians is about is we need to come together in the gospel and not worry about these cultural differences. You know, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who, in different cultures. Now, I've never been with the, our, our guys to Nigeria or India or Belize or anything like that, but I've seen pictures and I've heard stories. There's quite a bit of difference culturally between our, our different brethren. And when you go and you go to one of their worship assemblies, it's going to look a lot different than what we're doing here today. And that's not wrong. They're still scripturally accurate in, as far as their doctrine and things like that, but it would be different enough that it would make us uncomfortable if we tried doing that here. But that doesn't mean we're not brethren. The same if they come here. They don't try to impose their what they do normally on us. We don't impose what we do on them. The gospel breaks down the barriers of culture and race. You're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither slave nor free. You know, we don't have slavery in this country anymore, so it's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around this a little bit but it was very prevalent in this time period. You know, the book of Philemon is all about Paul writing to this man Philemon who had a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul had met this man and converted him to Christianity. And he's sending him back with this letter to Philemon. And he says there in verse 12 of Philemon, "'I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me by my my chains, in my chains for the gospel.'" But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. Listen, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Here's the gospel breaking down barriers. Now, Onesimus, he was a runaway slave. Paul acknowledged the fact that this guy really needs to return to his master to fulfill his responsibilities. Paul didn't say, hey, listen, Philemon. Uh, there really shouldn't be slavery in the world. And you know, slavery is not good, and therefore you need to free him, and he's with me now, and it's all good. What he said was, listen, he ran away, and that wasn't necessarily the right thing for him to do, but it led to something good. He's become a Christian now, and I'm sending him back to you. I'm doing the right thing, but I want you to receive him not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And we assume that Philemon did that. We don't have proof of that, but we assume that he did. And that Onesimus was no longer just a slave to him, but his brother in Christ. And regardless of class, how much money I have or don't have, how much money or power you have or don't have, the gospel breaks all those barriers down. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither male nor female. You know, I, guess, I suppose this idea of gender identity or all the different buzzwords that we have is probably one of the biggest hot topics that we have. You know, and so this seems to go along with that concept of gender neutrality or whatever you want to call it. But what he's saying here is, is not that, yeah, it's real, there's really no difference. What he's saying here, it doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. We're all one in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 5.1, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. We're family. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Take this whole passage in context. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We consider this. The blessing of salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, the sonship that we have, the closest that we have, all that eclipses anything we accomplish in our own lives, what we think we've earned or deserved, What we were born into, the kind of whatever race we are or culture we have, whether I'm a man or a woman, all that is eclipsed by the gospel. And also when you turn and look at it from the other way, I don't deserve anything I've been given by God. I don't deserve, I didn't earn it, I didn't merit it, I didn't work for it. I don't naturally deserve it. I'm worthy of death. But because of what Jesus Christ did for me, all those barriers are broken down. And I can't look down on anyone or I can't look up to anyone. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I wanna go back to Galatians 4 now and read this entire passage as we close this morning and think about this in light of everything we've talked about this morning regarding what it means to be divinely adopted into God's family. Verse three, even so we... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son in your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now listen to this verse. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You know, understanding the nature of our divine adoption. When we obey the gospel, it isn't just that my sins were forgiven. That's a big part of it. But it now means I'm part of something very special. I'm part of God's family. And I'm not just his offspring. I'm his legal heir. I have an intimacy, a closeness with God that I cannot have apart from Jesus Christ only comes through him. It comes when I put on Christ in my life. It comes when my primary identity is found in Christ. It comes when I have a closeness with him and I take him wherever I go with me. I imitate him in my life. And I realize that I'm only acceptable to God because the blood of Jesus covers me. And also what a great and wonderful blessing it is that Each and every person in this room is my brother and my sister. We're all one in Christ. Regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of whatever happens to us in our lives, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Why would we not? want? That's a family I wanna be a part of. That's a father I wanna have. Why would we not wanna be a part of that? Have you made that decision in your life today? Have you been divinely adopted into the family of God? If not, there's no better opportunity than right now to take care of that. To believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, be buried with him in baptism. Take care of that right now, today. Be divinely adopted into the family of God and receive all these blessings. Join the rest of your family in doing that. If you need the prayers of this church for any reason, wanna be baptized, please come have a seat on the front row as we stand and sing.